You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Nine Cents. Hi. How are you doing? You look fabulous. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I am your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is March 11th. I've got a great show for you this week. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to talk about uh, not all Satanists have a red card. An infernal informant. Senate approves bill on wrongful births. I actually got this article from a social networking friend. Uh, Thank you very much for putting it up there. And the article, 16 Afghan civilians killed in rogue U.S. attack. In the creature feature, I'm bringing you an amazing illustrator, Danny Hellman. We talked about uh, illustration, a little bit about himself, and uh, just a lot about what it means to be an artist, and certainly in the industry. And in Bizarre the Bizarre, that's right, I'm going to bring you on, junk and water. And I'm not talking about trash. So, uh, that's going to be the entirety of this show. Uh, Before we get started, as usual, I want to talk a little bit about my week, if uh, you will indulge. And I think you will. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening, right? So, I started playing a video game called I Am Alive. And I'm not a big video game person. I mean, I was when I was younger. I I don't really have the time, though I do appreciate a good story and certainly, you know, a fun game. This is on the Xbox 360. It is a downloadable-only game. And the premise is around uh, my favorite of premises, the end of the world, as it were. Some series of great natural catastrophic events have occurred, and you, the hero, are trying to be reunited with your uh, wife and daughter in this post-apocalyptic cityscape, essentially. Could be New York, could be Chicago. Uh, It's actually probably like uh, New York, Boston, or something like that. But... The point isn't on where you are, it's survival. And this is what I find so amazing about it. You don't have aliens, this isn't caused by some demonic creatures coming up from the earth or other creatures invading the world. This is all just human beings trying to survive in what is no society, and actually toxic so it's it's thrilling, it's exciting, there are finite times that you can mess up and die, and then you have to start over at the beginning of the next chapter, or the first chapter. Um, there are limited resources, which I find amazing. Uh, even when you climb buildings, you run out of stamina. You run out of stamina when you climb a building and you fall to your death. So, and you're forced into these situations that are challenging and difficult, and it just reminds me of sort of the original version of gaming, which is uh, difficult and no holds barred. You know, video games, and I'm not the best of gamers out here, so it's hard for me to really uh, put my finger on it, 
uh, were to really you know drive the point home here. But video games have really gone gone into the casual market. Well, this game, and at least at least to me, a casual gamer, uh, is a very uh, old school take. Um, you get X amount of chances, and the more you delve into it, and the more you uncover, the more chances you earn. Uh, sort of replays, as it were. But that's it. So if you only have one bullet, which is quite often the case, and you come up on, you know, four or five, uh, a camp of four or five other survivors who are violent, not all of them are, but some of them are, then you have to seriously think about, okay, who am I going to shoot? How am I going to get out of here alive? How am I going to convince them that I have more bullets? I mean, you really have to think about how you're going to approach each given situation. You just can't run through and mash buttons. It's amazing. It's a great game. It's wonderfully written. Got horrible reviews. And I think it got horrible reviews because it's like old school games, non-forgiving. You know, there isn't as much of a learning curve as you find in Cut the Rope, for example, on your iPad or something. Uh, anyway, I'll probably give it a review some other time down the road in a Creature Feature, but that's, you know, what me and my son are sort of, you know, working our way through slowly but surely, having a lot of fun doing. Uh, and then another thing that happened this week, I tend to troll. And I don't, I only do it to specific people if they've given me a reason, um, I hate unwarranted trolling. It it drives me crazy. And what I mean by that is on social media networks posting a blanket statement, which is quite often hyperbolic, uh, based somewhat in truth, but so vague that anyone could take any meaning from it, depending on who and what they are and, you know, how they think, and uh, sort of find offense to it or, um, you know, attack the idea. And it's done to provoke a reaction. That's why it's called trolling. You know, I'm the troll under the bridge, and you have to cross the bridge. You see my post, and suddenly, you know, you, you try to cross it, and and I jump out. So, I was doing this specifically to trap some uh, more annoying people in my friends list who I don't understand why they're in my friends list. And, and it's that idea that people... It seems like it's okay on a day-to-day basis to say, God bless you, and I'll pray for you. And that drives me crazy, because I find that very offensive. What it tells me is that they're saying, your worldview is entirely wrong, um, you are a failure, and I am going to be the one to save you. Fuck that. Fuck them. Not going to take it. And, you know, more importantly, everyone in my current world here understands who and what I am, and how I think, and how I behave. Every once in a while, um, I just recently reconnected with some uh, family that I had never met, uh, who live in the Bible Belt and are very much into all that. So I find it, you know, since they are family, I have to sort of tell them straight up honestly that, whoa, 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 what you're actually saying to me is quite offensive. And continuing to do so is an outright insult. And if your point is to be insulting, well, then get out of my life because I don't want anything to do with you. And otherwise, learn from your mistake and it's not a big deal. You know, I mean, they do it once. I understand that's how they think. That's who they are. But I'm going to let them know where I come from. And I'm not going to apologize for where I come from. And I'm not going to tolerate it at all. So 
uh, I set up this uh, little message, sending it to the person. They um, responded, and it turned out I sent it to the wrong person <laughs> because I had recently had an influx of family members <laughs> that I've never met cousins and cousins and you know aunts and uncles and stuff. Um, so it, it's interesting trying to work my way through who is who and uh, <laughs> keeping that in mind. Um, I've actually lost a lot of family members <laughs> in my social networking quote friends list, uh, end quote. But <laughs> I, I care not. I mean, it doesn't matter to me because I never met them before, and they've only met me because of something you know some other family members have done, and so they just wanted to reach out. Well, now they know, so <laughs> I find them insulting and ignorant. Uh, not gonna apologize, but that was the the core to my trolling uh, was to uncover some more of these people. Uh, I was lucky enough not to find many more, though there were a couple hiding under a rock. However, when you do something like this, it's difficult because I have a lot of intelligent friends whom I respect greatly who immediately start responding to my social networking posts. And when, when all I'm doing is trying to troll and drive out some uh, assholes in my life, and I accidentally instigate conversations that I never meant to have. I try to take it to, like, instant messaging, like, oh, hey, you know, I just want you to know that this was not meant to be an objective response. I did not want to have discussion. I'm trying to uh, grab hold of someone, essentially. I'm setting a little trap, and I want to trap one specific person. I do not want to have a discussion about it. And everyone was great about it, but that's actually the core at one of these articles. Um, so I'm sure if you're connected with me, you will understand <laughs> fully what, uh, after I read this article, what I'm talking about. Uh, but just to say that if you are going to be trolling, like I do, for, well, no, every, I don't do it all the time, but every once in a while I'll do it. Uh, if you do, uh, be ready with that IM to tell your friends, uh, look, please stop. I do not want you uh, poking holes in this obviously uh, Swiss cheese argument. It's intentionally that way, and <laughs> if you do it, then I'm not going to catch the right people who you know who, who will just walk right into it. So just be ready for that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for my intro here. Let's go ahead and jump into the Devil's Advocate. Um, I'm interesting little uh, conversation here. I want to have. See you there. Say why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? Don't lie to me. I guess, Father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. And that is all. Not all Satanists carry a red card.
So it's pretty obvious what I mean there. Not every Satanist that I know, that I've ever met, that are of significance, that contribute to society or, you know, the greater whole of what it is to be a Satanist, necessarily are members of the Church of Satan. And you'll notice that every single interview I have with a known Satanist, I ask, when did you first identify yourself as a Satanist? And why did you join the Church of Satan? And I did a post, or I did a a sort of rant on this a little while ago about, you know, the type of people that are in the Church of Satan. And maintaining some anonymity for those who commented on that, uh, I received a, a little message, which, you know, its entirety suggested to me that I was saying, if you are not contributing in a manner as outlined, and I think in that case it was uh, providing music or, or books or, uh, you know, some form of media to be consumed by other Satanists or something like that, then, you know, perhaps you weren't of worth to uh, the Church of Satan, or maybe you should not join the Church of Satan. That is not what I was meaning at all, and so I sort of wanted to discuss that in this Devil's Advocate, because I think it is important. Uh, First, let me lay down the gauntlet. Uh, At the beginning of this segment, every single episode, I say I'm not uh, a voice for the Church of Satan. I'm a member, but I don't speak for it. So, whatever I say in this podcast, whatever I say in social media sites, um, anywhere, my opinion is my own. It is not the Church of Satan's opinion. So please um, keep that in mind, no matter what I'm talking about. It is my opinion. Sometimes it may be aligned, more times than not, with with, uh, what the Church of Satan might uh, say or believe or feel as an organization and what other Satanists may see and think and feel. But, you know, this is a grand tent that we're all under and not every Satanist is alike, certainly by uh, opinion. So take it for what it means, all right? Uh, and certainly when it comes to you making a decision, whomever you are, in identifying yourself as a Satanist, well, hopefully you're not going to do that unless you absolutely agree with everything that's in the Satanic Bible. And that's the bottom line. Because if you don't agree with it, you're not a Satanist. And if you do, and you always have felt that way, well, then you know you are a Satanist. And you don't need a red card to tell you that you're a Satanist. Some people like to join the Church of Satan uh, to, um, you know, just declare their uh, allegiance to the Satanic Empire. Uh, Some do it uh, for, uh, you know, showing respect for the philosophy um, some people don't do it at all. That doesn't mean that they're any less of a Satanist. That doesn't mean that because they're not members, they don't have a voice, or they're not Satanic. I mean, we even recognize people that, that are de facto Satanists, that have never, maybe, ever been exposed to what Satanism means, but live their life as a Satanist exhibiting satanic ideals just in their natural way of being and honestly that's what we would all be if we had never found the satanic bible de facto satanist because our philosophies are still the same they didn't change when we read the satanic bible we just saw ourselves in it and certainly 
me joining the organization did not solidify that I was a Satanist. I didn't suddenly get this red ass burned into my chat. Well, okay, maybe that did happen. No, <laughs> it just doesn't happen like that, right? So, I mean, I joined the Church of Satan because I wanted to be affiliated with the organization. I wanted to be known um, to the organization as someone who respects the philosophy and uh, its membership and uh, the organization as a and as an idea, as a construct. Um, but just because you're a member or you're not a member doesn't mean you're going to be more or less productive in life. That's entirely up to you. So there are members who never, ever say or out themselves as Satanist, and they've never written a book or sung a song or produced a movie or, or anything like that. Um, they just live their lives happy, fulfilled, and that's it. And then there's people who don't join the Church of Satan, and their sole responsibilities in li- their life are their own, which is hell Satan to that, which is fantastic. Being responsible for your own life. If it comes down to a situation where you would put a burden on your family in order to uh, drop whatever the whatever the entry fee is um, to the organization... I mean, if that's the boundary, we'll save up like a responsible person or don't join. It's up to you. But certainly don't take my podcast and don't take my ranting as as cause or not to join or not. Because that's not what I'm here to do. Um, I think it's important to say that and I don't mean to be rude by it and I certainly don't want to diminish what I perceive as, at times, some really powerful messages that I I deliver through this, this medium. But I don't want anyone... And certainly in in any aspect of life, you should never look to someone else for an answer on anything. It should always be up to you for your own reasons. Because that's the only thing that matters in life. That's it. Never do anything for someone else's justifications. I mean, you have to stand on your own two feet. At the end of the day, if you can look at yourself in the mirror, whether you have a red card in your pocket or not, and look at yourself with pride and say, I Satanist. Well, that's all that matters. I mean, you are the alien elite. You recognize what you are. You stand up. And you may be in your own private chamber or at some uh, uh, friendly event and you raise your horn, sign of the horns, you know, shouting out, Hail Satan! Take pride in that. Recognizing who you are is a huge step on the road to self-actualization, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Arrogant opinion. Um, and really, that's all I really wanted to speak to. Uh, and, and it comes down to this very basic point. Don't base decisions off of a podcast or anyone else. Do things for your own reasons or not. For your own reasons. More importantly than anything... Be responsible, man. Thanks for sending in the message. I really, truly appreciate you listening. And I hope that uh, this little diatribe um, is of some use, if for no other reason to, you know, tell yourself that, yeah, you're right. You know, it doesn't matter what other people think. Fuck them. So, uh, that's going to be it. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into the Infernal Informant.
This is uh, ArizonaCapitalTimes.com, your inside source for Arizona politics. And the article is, Senate Approves Bill on Wrongful Births, by the Associated Press, published March 6. The Arizona State (laughs) Senate has approved a bill that would shield doctors and others from so-called wrongful birth lawsuits. Those are lawsuits that can arise if physicians don't inform pregnant women of prenatal problems that could lead to a decision to have an abortion. The Senate's 20-9 vote Tuesday sends the bill to the State House. The bill's sponsor is Republican Nancy Bardo of Phoenix. She says allowing the medical malpractice lawsuits endorses the idea that if a child is born with a disability someone is to blame. Bardo said the bill will still allow true malpractice suits to proceed. If the bill becomes law, Arizona would join nine states, barring both wrongful life and wrongful birth lawsuits. Opponents of the bill say it's unnecessary and would infringe on reproductive rights. Okay, there's a couple things here I want to point out. So, (laughs) <laughs> I have some some genuine issues with this. Um, unnecessary and would infringe on reproductive rights. Yeah, yeah, completely. This and and this is sort of what Republicans do. And, and I mean that's not really fair because Democrats do this too. This is what politicians do in order to further um, their point is they take something, an idea like a woman's right to know the health of her child and make an informed decision on whether or not to carry that birth to term on the health of the baby. Taking that right away from her to have dominion over her own physical body and providing it to doctors. I don't see that as a good thing. At all. And, and I think the fact that a woman is bringing this forward tells you that that's not really the point. I mean, that may be the backseat issue that they're covering up. But really, this is a religion, uh, religious decision that she's trying to push. She's using that wrongful birth and wrongful life um, blocking. Uh, she's hiding it behind malpractice suits. And she's hiding it in order to further that religious agenda of not allowing women the right to decide. And, and this can be seen in virtually every avenue. Um, the, the Republicans more recently than anything did it over the birth control issue that I had brought up before. Instead of framing it around, birth control itself should be provided for no cost by every healthcare provider, and the Republicans seeing that as uh, approval for abortion, as it were, and thus brought in the religious aspect of, you know, the administration against religion and, and right to practice. They frame it around the incorrect dichotomy so that you cannot have an honest discussion about it. And that's really all it comes down to. Rather than saying, we don't want you to have the choice that we believe is the wrong choice, the potential of wrong choice, because 
an imaginary guy told Moses on top of a mountain a long time ago, and we sort of just carried that, you know, to course 2,000 plus years later, uh, you know, with our own little add-ins and subtractions as appropriate. We know best. You don't. Freedom of choice. <laughs> Not in America. That's really what it's come down to. And aren't Republicans all about getting the state out of your life? Aren't they trying to have smaller government? All the while pushing anything that has anything to do with reproduction into someone else's hands. And you can say, well, this isn't in the government hands. This is in doctor's hands. Well, if that were the case, there wouldn't be a bill about it. This is in the government's hands because... The Senate has approved the bill. This is ridiculous. You are either for individual right to choose your own life and destiny, or you are not. Whether or not a fetus who has a defect or not is carried to term or not is none of your goddamn... None of your business, unless you're the one carrying it to term or caring for the woman who is carrying it to term. That's it. The Senate has no say. The doctor has no say. None. That fetus cannot exist without the woman that is carrying it. That's the bottom line. Cannot exist without the woman. Therefore, it is the woman's burden to bear. And if she makes that painful decision to end it, that's her decision. And this is just absurd that Arizona... I mean, Arizona is a Republican state. Um, They are very much... The Miami of the desert, <laughs> where old people go to die. <laughs> so, it's not a surprise that something like this would pass. But still, I mean, they literally have the Crypt Keeper, McCain, still <laughs> representing them. <laughs> it's just so crazy. Yeah, no, why should a woman have a right to know the health of her baby and thus make the decision on aborting it or carrying it to term as she sees fit. I mean, she's only going to be the one providing for it. She's only going to be the one paying for the bill. Eh, You know, let the doctors and the uh, Republicans make the decision. What do they care? They're not taking care of it after it's born. They make sure of that. Why can anyone look themselves in the mirror with pride and conviction in their hearts and say, I'm a Republican? It's, It's stunning to me. And especially a woman. And how could a woman bring this to Bill and still consider herself a woman? It's Stockholm Syndrome. I, I, I can't help but say it's Stockholm Syndrome. Like, she is so convinced that her captors over her body, the Republican Party and God, are so right that she has to defend them and further their cause. Do, do these people not have pride to stand on their own two feet? Is that it? Because if that's the case, let's abort them. They should be covered (laughs) under the malpractice suit protections of the doctors euthanizing them. Okay, the next one. 16 Afghan civilians killed in a rogue U.S. attack. This is Reuters. Um... Let's see, by uh, Ahmed Nadim and Ahmed Haroun, Sunday, March 11th. 16 Afghan civilians, including the nine children, were shot dead in what witnesses described as a nighttime massacre 
on Sunday near a U.S. base in southern Afghanistan, and one U.S. soldier was in custody. While U.S. officials rushed to draw a line between the rogue shooting and the ongoing efforts of the U.S. force of around 90,000, the incident is sure to further inflame Afghan anger triggered when U.S. soldiers burned copies of the Quran at a NATO base. U.S. officials said an American staff sergeant from a unit based in Washington state was in custody after the attack on villages in three houses. I'm sorry, on villagers in three houses. Multiple civilians were also wounded. A spokesman for the NATO-led International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, coalition said President Barack Obama called his Afghan counterpart, Hamid Karzai, promised uh, to establish the facts quickly and to hold fully accountable anyone responsible. As they should. I mean, what else could they be expected to say? You know, if someone... And I'm going to get into the article a little bit more here in a second, but if someone loses their shit, starts shooting up civilians, well, hold them accountable. Lex Talionis. Get their ass in prison, run a military council, and, uh, you know, shoot them if they're in the wrong. That's that's what the system is there for. Uh, there were conflicting reports of how many shooters were involved, with U.S. officials asserting that a lone soldier was responsible. Of course we would. In contrast to witnesses' accounts that several U.S. soldiers were present. I bet they got a clear view from behind the rocks where they were hiding once the fire started. The incident was one of the worst of its kind since the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. <laughs> since the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan. <laughs> that we sort of forgot about for nine years while we still had soldiers living and fighting and dying in there. And then we suddenly turn our attention when we wipe our hands with Iraq. That's great. The U.S. Embassy in Kabul, it's not Kabul, it's Kabul, said anti-U.S. reprisals were possible following the killings. Just as the Quran burning incident a few weeks earlier had touched off widespread anti-Western protests in which at least 30 people died. Neighbors and relatives of the dead said that they had seen a group of U.S. soldiers arrive at their village in Kandahar's Panjawi district at about 2 a.m., enter homes, and open fire. An Afghan man who said his children were killed in the shooting spree accused soldiers of later burning the bodies. I have a hard time believing that bullshit line. Even if it's true, um, think about this. When you're in another country in a war zone, you have an entire chain of command to answer to. That means there's a lot of eyes on you. You can't really just sneak out, murder a family, burn their bodies. Let's just say it takes a couple hours to burn a body with a gigantic trail of funky-smelling black smoke raising from the burning ashes uh, without more than a couple villagers seeing it. <laughs> like, you cannot hide something like that. Alright, neighbors and relatives of the dead said they had seen the U.S. Uh, I just said that. Uh, an Afghan man who said his children were killed in the shooting spree accused soldiers of burning bodies. Obama said he was deeply saddened. This incident is tragic and shocking and does not represent the exceptional character of our military. <laughs> what does he... <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to laugh when I say exceptional character. He's literally addressing the complaint or the assertion that our military went in, shot up children, 
burn their bodies to hide the evidence, and then claims that our military is exceptional. The balls on this guy, the cojones he has to, to make that statement. Oh, that is... Oh, love it. Um, the United States has for the people of Afghanistan. <laughs> we respect them so much that we go into their houses, shoot them, and burn them. In- <laughs> Intentional murders. Uh, Afghan President Karzai condemned the rampage as intentional murders and demanded an explanation from the United States. His office said that the dead included nine children and three women. Uh, I, okay, let, let me sort of stop here and say really quick, I don't, I'm not, I don't condone stuff like this. I, I think that's horrible. I think protection of children, no matter their ethnicity or geographical location, is incredibly important. They have nothing to do with anything in the political realm. They are just trying to live their lives in a very crappy environment. So, uh, you know, that's why I'm saying Lex Talionis here. If these American soldiers did do what they are accused of doing, discover the truth and hold them responsible. Bullet to the head, as is in... (laughs) As is in the rules. I mean, that's the Uniform Code of Military Justice. In wartime, uh, penalty penalty for disobeying orders is death. So kill them. Uh, Get it over with. And I think having a public execution would actually probably give us a little bit of face with the Afghans. I'm not saying we cut their heads off like their fanatical religious people do. But you know what? If if this guy did shoot children, people that had nothing to do with assaulting them, then they need to be held accountable. And why not do it in a public square where everyone can see and um, you know we can be seen as, as policing our own? I mean, that's that's important for relations, for one, and important to stand up as human beings and say, we do not condone the murdering of children. It's important. Even if it is our own soldiers doing it. Uh, no one can do that. It's, it's, it's messed up and is wrong. Uh, Afghan officials also gave varying accounts of the number of shooters involved. Karzai's office released a statement quoting a villager saying, American soldiers woke my family up and shot them in the face. Well, what about you then? What, they leave you to... Send a message? What is this, like an old Clint Eastwood film? Minister of Border and Tribal Affairs, Azdella Khalid, said a U.S. soldier had burst into three homes, ah, a soldier, near his base in the middle of the night, killing a total of 16 people, including 11 people in the first house. The ISAF spokesman said the U.S. soldier walked back to the base and turned himself into U.S. forces this morning, adding there had been no military operations taking place in the area where the incident occurred. Okay, well, great. He lost his shit, as happens in the military uh, when you're in wartime. You know, you have to deal with situations that are very much not a part of our modern society, and that can play wreak havoc on the human psyche if you're not prepared for it. Uh, it takes a certain type of person to be able to survive through that. So it's not unheard of that someone's going to lose their shit. Uh, but if he turned himself in, well, hell, if he's admitting to it, let's take care of it, right? I mean, it, there doesn't seem to be a need for anyone to protect anyone if he admitted to doing it. 
Uh, the Panjawi district is about 35 kilometers or 22 miles west of the province capital, Kandahar City. The district is considered a spiritual home of the Taliban and has been a hive of insurgent activity in recent years. Quote, I saw that all 11 of my relatives were killed, including my children and grandchildren, end quote, said weeping Haji Samad, who said he had left his home a day earlier. Blood splattered walls. The walls of the house were blood spattered. They, Americans, poured chemicals over the dead bodies and burned them, Samad told Reuters at the scene. And yet only one person confessed to it, walking up alone? Interesting. Neighbors said that they had awoke to crackling gunfire from America's soldiers, who they described as laughing and drunk. Really? They were all drunk and shooting all over the place, said neighbor Agad Lala, who (coughs) visited one of the homes where killings took place. Well, I'd like to know how they got uh, booze. Huh. If you know anything about the area, it's not really a, a legal thing, is it? In Muslim culture, um, I know you can't drink when you're on assignment. You don't even have access to beer. Interesting. Their victims' bodies were riddled with bullets. A senior U.S. defense official in Washington rejected witnesses' accounts that several apparently drunk soldiers were involved. Based on the preliminary information we have, this account is flatly wrong. The official said, "We believe one U.S. service member acted alone, not a group." <laughs> Defense Secretary Leon Panetta said Karzai to offer his consultances, uh, called Karzai to offer his consultances. I condemn such violence and am shocked and saddened that a U.S. soldier member is alleged to be involved, clearly acting outside of his chain of command, obviously. Panetta said in a statement, a full investigation is already underway as a su- <coughs> suspect is in custody, and I gave President Karzai my assurances that we will bring those responsible to justice. Here, here. The Afghan Taliban <clears throat> said it would take revenge for the deaths in an emailed statement to media. I feel like they already have. I mean, let's tally up some numbers. I, I, feel, like, uh, I feel like we're pretty good. The U.S. Embassy in Kabul said an investigation was underway and that the individual or individuals responsible for this act will be identified and brought to justice. ISAF Commander General John Allen promised a rapid investigation. Civilian casualties have been a major source of friction between Karzai's Western-backed government and U.S.-led NATO forces in Afghanistan. NATO is preparing to hand over all security responsibilities to Afghans, and all, force com- I'm sorry, and all foreign combat troops are scheduled to leave by end 2014. NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen... Why would you put your middle name that's obscure in there? Uh, said the alliance remained firmly committed to its mission and said anyone responsible would be held accountable. The Kron burning and the violence that followed included a spate of deadly attacks against U.S. soldiers, underscored the challenges that the West faces as it prepares to withdraw. Sunday's attack may harden a growing consensus in Washington that despite a troop surge, a war bill exceeding $500 billion over 10 and a half and almost 2,000 U.S. lives lost, Prospects are dimming for what the United States can accomplish in Afghanistan. These killings only serve to reinforce the mindset that the the whole war is broken and that there is little we can do about it beyond trying to cut our losses and leave, said Joshua Faust, Faust? a security expert with the American Security Project. That's the article. So, um, and I'm I'm of the firm belief we need to get out of that area. No matter how good a job we may or may not do or how many people we go and shoot and then burn 
in a drunken revelry, even though you don't have access to beer and only one person confessed for the multiple person. Um, why do you even take seriously, why would anyone take seriously uh, a survivor's story uh, from a group that has everything to gain by your death and ousting of their country? Of course they're going to lie and exaggerate and make up ridiculous claims. Of course they are! Don't take that for truth! And, you know, all the better. If this guy came in alone and he confessed to it, uh, you know what? Shoot his ass down, like I said before. Uh, do it in a public space so they can all see. And then get the hell out of Afghan, Istan. Because there's no reason to be there. We've succeeded in what we were trying to do when we invaded, and that was find Osama bin Laden. He died a while ago, shot by our own Navy SEALs. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what are we doing there? Really? Besides burning Qurans and uh, bodies, apparently. <laughs> so, so stupid. Uh, okay, so anyway, that that's going to do it for the Infernal Informant. I'm going to give you a little bit of a break, and then we're going to jump into my interview with Danny Hellman. And then a little bit of uh, Bizarre the Bizarre before we close this up. See you there. Prepare for incoming message. Prepare yourself for Deep Six Radio. I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am Inris. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep Six... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air... We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep Six also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep Six Radio... Deep Six is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to, to you joining us. End of the line. Venture down into Lambert's basement and join me, Dave Ingram and Eagle, Hello. where we time travel via nostalgia to a golden age of big band swing and jazz, only available on Radio Free Satan.
Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. A, a bit of a preface to this interview. We had recorded it, and we started with Skype. Skype took a dump on us, and so we moved over to cell phone. So about five or six minutes in, you're going to notice that it shifts dramatically. Um, that's why. Enjoy. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by artist, illustrator, Danny Hellman. Danny, thank you so much for joining me. How are you tonight? I'm getting over a cold, Adam, so if I cough uh, occasionally, I hope uh, that won't upset you or your listeners. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. Well, I, I hope you start feeling better. I know it's been going around. I mean, it's that season, you know. I'm starting to feel better. I was feeling pretty, uh, pretty crappy the other day, so... Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I said I was born in 1964. I grew up wanting to draw comic books, you know, reading comic books, reading Marvel comics and DC comics and, you know, pretty much any comics. Yeah. And by the time I was in high school, I, you know, that was my dream. I wanted to draw for Marvel. And um, as luck would have it, we lived in Brooklyn at the time, and we had an upstairs neighbor who was friends with a Marvel writer named Bill Mantlow. And I was introduced to Bill Mantlow, and he thought that I had some promise. So he started working with me on some demo pages. You know, for a few months, we were going back and forth on these demo pages, and we finally got the pages to where he thought they were ready to, to show to his higher-ups. And at that point, and I've told this story a million times in a million different venues, so I, I hope your listeners haven't already heard it, but I had this evil friend at the time, and uh, and I, I also had a full head of hair at that time. I had this ridiculous uh, afro thing on my head. And I was hanging out with my friend, and I said, oh, I want to get my hair cut before I go up to meet these Marvel editors. And the guy says, oh, I, uh, I can cut your hair. I, I cut my sister's hair all the time. I'm kind of... Uh, a trusting soul. So I said, sure, here's the scissors. And he started grabbing my afro and hacking huge chunks of it off. Oh, and, man. And he started tackling it. He says, I, I don't know how to cut hair. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, you know, so I then overreacted and said, well, the only thing I could do now is shave my head. Yeah. This was 1982. This is, you know, like now you're, we're used to seeing people with shaved heads every, you know, three feet. Yeah. But in 1982, this is when, you know, Geraldo had skinheads on his program and they were throwing chairs at each other. And it was like, <laughs> I remember that stuff. Yeah, the height of, you know, bad behavior to have a shaved head. <clears throat> so I went, I took these sample pages up to my appointment to meet this editor, Tom DeFalco. And I don't know if it was my shaved head or... The, uh, but in, in any case, he looked at it, what I had done, and he said, ah, this is just fan art. Sort of the, the tragic uh, explosion of my teen, teenhood dreams. Uh, and that, that was kind of where I gave up on you know, drawing for superhero comics. Wow. At that point, I really just sort of floundered few years started uh, smoking way too much pot mm. 
gave up on drawing, became a bike messenger, and just sort of, you know, scooting around in midtown Manhattan delivering packages. Uh, but from there, at the messenger service where I worked, my dispatcher was a uh, is is to this day musician in various bands, D pop, and he had a band at the time called the Floor Death with his then wife Dear France, and they somehow some drew things, and they said, "Hey, you want to draw posters for our, our band?" And I said, "Sure, sounds like fun." And <laughs> Not only did I draw posters for their band, but I actually posted them. You know, like I would go out by night and you know, with a bucket of heat paste and uh, things up over Lower Manhattan yeah. to their shows. That was sort of the the beginning of my commercial art career because I was then able to uh, take those posters and uh, you know ship them to. Well, the first art director I showed them to was my friend Kevin Hine, who was the art director at Screw Magazine, the legendary New York City porn tabloid. Yeah. Um, he liked them. One of them, one of the artist posters was a drawing of a, a cab driver driving along on the ocean floor, chasing after a uh, a comely mermaid, and uh, he said, oh, "I'd make a perfect screw cover." So you know, that was the first. Uh, my first illustration gig. This was in uh, the summer of 1988. Oh, wow. I wanted to ask you about that. Did it ever get easier for you, or, or maybe when, if, if you can remember, when did it get easy to take criticism? Okay. Uh, I know a lot of artists have a hard time with that. I know I did uh, when I was going through uh, college. I mean, I'm a graphic designer by trade, and so you know, taking criticism from clients... Uh, or prospective clients and stuff—it's kind of par for the course. You have to be able to do that, and so it's—it's it's something you have to learn. At what point, do you, you know, was that uh, easier for you? That's a, a good question because it's definitely what separates the the people who are able to work in commercial art and those who aren't don't have the right temperament for it. You know, it's like you have to be ready to collaborate. You know, and if somebody says, oh, I don't like this so much, I wish you would do that, you know, you kind of have to be ready to do what they want. Mm -hmm. That's why it's commercial art and not fun art. Um, I mean, criticism like, you're drawing sucks. Or, <laughs> you know, like an art director saying, uh, oh, I feel these are too uh, cartoony. Could you do something that's a little more, uh, I don't know, uh, scary or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people, there's going to be people who don't work, and you just kind of have to accept that, that there's going to be people who like your work, there's going to be people who don't, and, uh, you know, it's, the same, it's like just being a human. It's like there's going to be people who like you, there's going to be people who don't like you, and you're not necessarily going to ever know why or, you know, mm -hmm. to do anything about it. Um, you have to, you know, and again, it's like you, you got to like yourself. And you got to like what you're doing. If you're, if all you're going to worry about is pleasing other people, you're going to go rapidly insane, or at least I. Uh, yeah, and just fail a life in general. I'd like to think. <laughs> I mean, criticism. You know, it, it, it really 
it has more impact if it's coming from somebody who's got a, a valid opinion or somebody whose opinion you respect. You know, like if it's a, you know, some sage-like person who's saying, oh, you know, you really should do it this way instead of that way. You kind of got to, you know, actually consider what they're saying. But if it's just, you know, like one of your peers who <clears throat> may be motivated by spite or, you know, jealousy or just, you know, being an asshole... <laughs> um, you know, you just ignore it. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, if we're talking about the kind of criticism you get from an art director where they're trying to get you to, you know, change the direction of whatever assignment you're you're working on, you kind of have to be ready to accommodate them because they're paying you. Uh, and that that's why a lot of people can't really take you know, being an illustrator because you, you do have to be ready to compromise from the get-go. You know, like, it's not fine art. You're not Picasso. Yeah. You're, you're like, the, the guy they hired to cater their wedding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they don't like the canapes, you've got to whip up something else if you want to get paid. Yeah. Well, l let me sort of rewind this a little bit. I mean, you had you said you wanted to be a, a comic illustrator. Was it was it, was it the artwork that always inspired you, or was it sort of the stories that you were into, and that's what kind of got you into the art? I mean, do you, do you know what what it was that sort of set you on that path of the illustrator? Um. Well, I when I was a kid and was reading comic books, I didn't know anything about illustration. I didn't know illustration existed. You know, editorial illustration, which is what I do now. You yeah. Know, like, I never, you know, even when I was going to art school, I went, I went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, which is kind of a you know, public vocational art school, um, you know, which which could be a good experience if you had the right teachers, but uh, I made pretty poor choices about my teachers, so oh, man. I didn't get that much art training or, or useful art training out of my years there, but, you know, I, I wasn't aware illustration as a career path. I was just a single-mindedly focused on superhero comics at, at the time, in my teens. Uh, and as far as whether I was more interested in the art than the writing, I guess, uh, most kids read comics just for the stories, for the escapism. Yeah. And, and I think that if you already have some kind of a, an artistic inclination, then eventually you start to notice the good stuff. You know, you develop uh, discrimination for, oh, you know, this is really well drawn and this is, this is some hacked out crap. You know, like, I like this comic book because it's, the drawings are really cool and, you know, usually I... as a kid, good art means very detailed art. I think that that's, that's what I liked when I was a kid, and I, I tend to hear that from young, younger people that you know that they like things that are full of you know lots of little lines, yeah. lots of little details. And I think, do, uh, I mean, do you think that's partially because of the the era and the style of cartoons that were popular? in that time because it seems like nowadays whenever I, I see a cartoon with my kids or something it, it's not really detailed work but if I'm drawing back on memory 
you know, I mean, heavy metal, for example, but uh, an American Tale, uh, just you know, a bunch of old cartoon movies and just cartoons that I watched, like He Man, for example, growing up. Um, it seemed more detailed then than it is now. So, do you think that appreciation is because of what's just within the person, or do you think it's just because of what they're spoon fed in, in you know, in, in the in the market? I, I think that. Uh of our popular culture has has uh, slipped into degeneracy over the last you know decades you know like say what you want about the Simpsons but it's it's not very well drawn mm-hmm. and I think that it's so hugely popular and you know thanks to cartoons like uh, Simpsons, then you get Beavis and Butthead, which is also, you know, fun to watch, but really badly drawn. Yeah. And then along comes South Park, which is just one of the ugliest things you could lay eyes on. And again, it's hugely popular. So, you know, people, <clears throat> people are rewarding uh, cartoons and comics that are being drawn by, by people who you know, are really writers, or, or you know, who are, who are barely competent draftsmen, who are really just you know humor writers who are doing you know scribbly stick figures to help them convey their jokes. Uh, so you know, I think we're we're living in a time when I mean, but this has been going on for a long time. This this kind of started in the fifties with Charles Schultz and uh, oh, the name of that guy who did the Wizard of Id. Yeah. BC Johnny Hart was that his name? Uh, Jules Pfeiffer, you know, like they 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 brought <clears throat> a new style of cartooning that was kind of stripped down and uh, stripped down is, is not even the right word for it, but it's more you know less academic and less you know classically trained and just more scribbly and. Uh, let, let me ask you another question then, because do you think do you think that has a lot to do with turnaround? Like they're required to have you know X amount of of comics um, in in a short amount of time. Do you think do you think as an artist you tend to compromise for a deadline? I don't think that's it because you know those old time guys. You know, like uh, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a cartoon scholar, so I don't know. right. Everybody's name at the top of my head, but you know the guy did Terry and the Pirates and all those other, you know, Prince Valiant, Hal Foster, and those guys kept to the same schedule so that uh, later people would do in later decades, and they were able to do you know very detailed art. Uh, I don't think it's I, I don't think the simplification of the drawing styles owed to shorter turnarounds. Yeah. I, I think it was just a a, a fashion. Right on. I think that um, you know, in the same way that in fine art, you know, for for centuries, fine art was very you know academic and realistic and polished, and then you know, hundred and fifty years ago or so, things start to loosen up, and you know, then you, you know, yeah, absolutely. In the 20th century, you get uh, some stuff that's really pretty, I don't know, in my opinion, uh, worthless. 
Yeah, it's almost like technique is sort of thrown out the window. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, nice. Well, okay, n- let me ask you this. Um, the, the evolution of uh, computer art versus traditional um, pencil to, to pen, I'm, how, what's your process like? Well, I, um, my wife bought a computer since before we were married. We, I think we weren't even living together yet. Um, this would have been around 1995, and uh, she got a, a Macintosh and bought a scanner. Up until that point, I'd been doing everything, you know, by hand. You know, like I did my drawings and pen and ink, and then I had this really horrible process of coloring them where I'd, I'd run out to a, a place with a photostat camera, which I don't think exists anymore. You know, they used to have these places where you get photostats shot. <clears throat> you know, it's kind of like a photographic photocopy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Younger folks who've never heard of a photostat. Uh, you know, the big old camera. Uh, in fact, I, I had a job for a while operating one of these things. Oh, really? A giant camera with these hand cranks, and you have to feed negatives into it and then, you know, develop them in a dark room. And you could do paper stats or you could do film stats, you know, on transparencies. So what I would do is I would get my line art shot onto a transparency, and then I would paint the back of it with the uh, animation paint, kind of a, a, a very thin-down acrylic paint. And you'd paint it backwards, you know, you'd flip it. Yeah so that it was reading the wrong way and then you would paint, you know, in reverse. And was that to, just to ensure you had sharp lines? Yeah, yeah. You were you were painting on the back of it so that the, the paint was sort of sitting behind your, your line art. Mm-hmm. And you would want to do your highlights and your shadows first and then you would kind of layer the, the main color on top of it. Uh, I mean, I was never the most painterly of colorists, but I was definitely more painterly back then because I was using paint yeah. and using brushes. Kind of forced to be, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and then you'd have to stand over it with a blow dryer to get it to dry, and then you'd have to run to FedEx to get it into the, you know, the FedEx system to get it out to wherever your client was. So it was this horrible... You know, physical process, and uh, and then your client would get it. They put it on a, a, some kind of scanner. Usually, do a bad job of it so that your colors would get you know horribly mis misread by the scanner. Um, you know, just it was the way I was doing color prior to the, using computers was was not optimal. So so Linda got a computer. She got a scanner. I started to scan in my line art, and I, I learned how to use Photoshop, and uh, would just you know drop all my colors in digitally. And I realized that this is just you know infinitely superior to the way I've been doing things because <laughs> if I wanted to change the colors, you know, as anybody who's used Photoshop knows, it's, you have infinite color control. Yeah, uh, and the client has harder time screwing up your colors. <laughs> uh, they can they can do it, but they have to try harder. To do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Uh, so that's that's pretty much where my process has remained to this day. I, I draw you know, 
Have you ever attempted to start the whole process in, I mean, maybe even something like Illustrator um, to have uh, sharp vector lines? So do you think that any part of it is because of uh, sort of, you know, you know, the process that you came from is that, you know, you come from a very much uh, a traditional school of, of, of illustration, and so that's just sort of where you're comfortable and that's where you're going to stay? Um, or is it because of that potential of losing it? that would be it. You have to have, you know, your basics. You have to have talent, um, understanding of, of design and style. But for some reason, feeling that in your hand, that, that original piece of vellum uh, with that line drawing on it, it just, I don't know, it feels like almost you have a connection to the artist with it in your hand versus just some random print. Uh, a, a 
painting in a museum and looking at a uh, a poster. You, you know, know? Like the posters are nice, but would I want to pay five hundred dollars for a poster or thousand dollars <laughs> for a poster? No. Yeah. Um, you know, so that that's that's reason number three why I don't draw digitally. And nice. reason number four or five or whatever <laughs> is uh, I've never been good with vectors. I've strictly been a Photoshop guy. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there have been a handful of occasions when I've had to use Illustrator and I just can't get my head around it. You know, it's always like, uh, it's just a different, uh, a different discipline. It's, yeah. Do you find in your industry that that there are more old school people? Um, uh, I don't think it's fair to call it old school or new school. Do you think in your industry there's more traditional artists than there are um, digital, like all digital artists? You seem to be doing a lot of uh, political illustrations. Is that because it pays, or is that because you like politics, or you just like making a statement? I mean, what's uh, what, what's sort of the idea behind that? I would. Lo- I, I wish I got more political assignments. I uh, I don't get as many as I used to. I mean, illustration right now is is, is really in the toilet, just you know, because of the economy. Um, you know, print has been in decline for decades but you know these days it's hurting especially bad um, you know there's just not enough advertising money 
eating up a lot of the ad, ad money and, you know. Yeah. So, you know, in the 90s, I was working for uh, an all-weekly paper here in New York called the New York Press, and I had a weekly, you know, illustration for a political column, so I, I did tons and tons of political illustration back then, and, uh, you know, loved, loved doing it, and my interest in politics back then was pretty negligible, you know, I wasn't that interested in politics. Uh, I mean, I was to an extent, but I'm paying more attention to it now than I did in my 20s. Yeah. So, you know, when I do get political assignments now, I'm just drooling, you know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, they don't pay better than any other kind of assignment. Uh, you know, the best paying assignments are, are usually for business magazines. You know, you get a, an assignment from Forbes or Fortune or Inc. or one of those slick business magazines those tend to pay pretty well at, at least since Hustler stopped using illustration <laughs> <laughs> Hustler was the best uh, best paying illo gigs I ever got oh really yeah no, I, they paid uh, this is back in the 90s they paid $1500 for a two page spread oh man which you know for me was a pretty good score they haven't used illustration for many many years now so kind of look back wistfully on <laughs> um, what are some of your most memorable pieces good question good question I mean I, I did a lot of I had my most fun working for Kevin Hine at Screw um, you know, it was it was the first place I got hired to, to draw and I was also given a, a lot of freedom, you know. Uh, Screw was a uh, a weekly sex paper, you know. It's the kind of thing where if you were a conventioneer, you were coming to New York City for for a few days, and you wanted to uh, find prostitutes, you pick up a copy of Screw. Okay, <laughs> well, we got here. And, uh, it made a lot of money, you know, from from that uh, from that trade. During the 80s and through the 90s, uh, they had a series of art directors who were also cartoonists, and as a result, they they, they used a lot of cartoon art for the cover, and um, and their their attitude and their politics were really sort of irreverent and satirical, and uh, you know, I just did a lot of really fun stuff for Screw, and I worked for for Kevin at Screw from. 1988 until really just about six or seven years ago when the paper wow. finally folded. Um, wow. Yeah, so I, you know, I, it's hard for me to say what my favorite pieces, you know, the favorite illustrations I've done are, but I can certainly say that the most fun I've, I've had illustrating was for Screw. Nice. In spite of the fact that, you know, decent people uh, recoil in disgust at the mention <laughs> of, of its name. Uh, you know, I just got to do some really fun stuff for them. I also enjoyed working for New York Press. It was a similar kind of arrangement. Uh, you know, again, the art director, uh, a friend of mine named Michael Gentile, was also a cartoonist and had, you know, the same kind of interests. So, you know, you could 
is a, is a you know a big part of of the fun of being an illustrator and, and the, I guess you know the the best the best case scenario is that you you get an assignment from an art director who only has good ideas you know like you know comes to you with an idea that you know that you love already without even having had to work on it you know like um, you know, like there's, there's there's art directors who don't know what they want. They make you do 50 sketches till they finally decide. Okay, I like that one. And Jeez. by that time, you're exhausted and you're burned out. Um, what what's the most common case scenario? Are you are you approached with a, a a vague concept, and yours is your job to sort of come up with the creative for that, or are you post? Um, are are you approached with specifics in mind? Like I want this person doing this in this illustration, uh, do it. All it's all of the above. Um, sometimes an art director will have a very specific idea in mind, and uh, and as long as it's a good idea, I'm happy to just take what they've got and run with it. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't feel like I need to be the the genius who generates the concept every time. You know, like if. if I just did a bunch of illustrations for uh, for the Las Vegas Weekly, and uh, our director there is a guy named Ryan Olbrich, and he had uh, concepts for three out of the four illos that were great. You know, just uh, you know, uh, I didn't have to think at all. I like, these are these are the kind of ideas I would have come up with, and I'm you know happy to execute them. Uh, so, you know, so, so that happens sometimes, and. I'm happy to do that, but it's also nice when they say, you know, the story's about uh, you know people who can't get loans for their uh, for their uh, homes or you know, some something that's sort of wide open and they don't know what they want. I can kind of come up with my own approach, you know. Yeah, it's all over the place. You know, like there's no cut and dried way that the illustrations happen. Sometimes they know what they want. Sometimes they don't. Well, uh, editorial illustration isn't all you're really got your fingers in. Um, I, I saw you posted some uh, designs for skateboards for broken skateboards, right? Mm-hmm. How did that come that was, about? Those guys are in Amsterdam, and they contacted me on Facebook. And uh, you know, skateboards were something I'd never done, and I. You know, seen a lot of really cool art on skateboards. Uh, you know, I'm not a skateboard person, but I occasionally walk past the skateboard shop and see some really cool stuff. Yeah. And I thought, well, how does how does that stuff happen, and how do I get in on it? And I, I never really pursued it, but th- those guys found me on Facebook, and uh, and again, they were kind of open to anything. You know, like they didn't they didn't have anything specific in mind. They just liked what they had seen of my stuff. Uh, so I thought about it for you know, a very short time, probably a couple of hours, and came up with uh, sort of horror, horror-infused uh, pinup art, which you know, they they liked the idea of that. Very cool. Uh, so that happened. So is this something that you would... Um, look to in in the future of, of, of trying to sell art in sort of I guess it, you know art for art's sake is inspiration of your own 
Um, is that something that you really look forward to doing, or is there a comfort level with you know being provided a concept and just running with that? I'm happy being left to my own devices to come up with my own stuff. Like I, I definitely get the most pleasure out of coming up with my own concept. So if I, if somebody came to me and said you can choose between, you know, doing your own self-generated concepts or having art directors come to you with the you know, pre-baked concepts, I would definitely say, leave me alone and let me do what I want to do. Nice. But I, I don't think anybody has uh, that. Well, you know, maybe that's not true. Maybe there are people, you know, and that's what a fine artist is. A fine artist is somebody who does, you know, their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't have that kind of a career. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you have that kind of a career. I, 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 didn't, I, never, I wasn't a painter. I didn't go to, you know, painter school. I don't know how that whole career path works. Yeah. Well, what can we expect next from you? Uh, do you have any anything new coming down the pike? Well, I've been working on a comic strip for, well, to call it a comic strip is not really the right word. It's uh, I hate saying the words graphic novel because it sounds so pretentious, <laughs> but that's what it is. Yeah. Any 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 chance we can get a sneak peek of the story behind it? Um, I'm trying to think of how to describe it without giving too much of it away. Yeah. It's it's a science fiction saga, but it's about the intersection of uh, science fiction and uh, pornography. But it's not what I would call a pornographic strip. Rather, it's about a publisher, you know, a sort of um, an amalgam of Hefner and Flint and Guccione and Alvin <laughs> you know, sort of qualities, you know, of each of their personalities plus, you know, character elements that are completely fictional. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, there's a protagonist and uh, let's just say the story starts in our world in the present and uh, you know, from there it sort of uh, takes off and goes to some pretty weird places very cool thank you so much for joining me before we wrap it up here uh, where can people find your work online uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you and your work well I have my website at www.dannyhelman.com but um, I built that myself and I'm not you know very good at, at updating it so the site itself is a few years old now 
I tend to post current work to Tumblr, and I don't know the URL for my Tumblr page off the top of my head, but, um, you know, I also post artwork on Facebook and Google Plus, and now I'm using Pinterest, so I'm, wow. you know, I'm, I'm you know, pounding my art out into uh, <laughs> All the over. digital universe via every you know, portal I can find. Um, well, it was a, a really great pleasure to talk with you, Danny. Uh, I, I love your work. I've been seeing it online for a little while now, and uh, truly, I have a great appreciation for illustrators. I hope uh, in the future, maybe when the first chapter is released online or, or through uh, you know some form of uh, EPUB or something, uh, maybe maybe we can have you on again and maybe talk a little bit about the story that you've released and uh, maybe a little what's to come. I would love to do that. I, you know, like. Right now, very few people have seen it, so I'm a little shy about talking about it. Yeah. But once it's out there, I'd be very happy to talk with you about that strip. Well, uh, you have yourself a, a fantastic night, and thanks again. Thank you, Adam. It's my pleasure. <laughs> In water. So, I was thinking about this, actually, strangely enough, just driving through the canyon on the way home one night, and I thought it was ironic that the same substance that shrivels one's junk, <laughs> speaking specifically to men here, is the exact same substance that sucks the clothes as tight as possible, thereby featuring said shrunken junk. <laughs> I feel like if there was any justice in the world... Okay, well, let me sort of back up, because there may be some people who lived on, I don't know, Mars for the majority of their lives, and they don't know about this. But for guys, um, the penis goes through these ebbs of flow ebbs and flow of uh, size, stature, girth, um, rigidity. <laughs> but when we're, like, really cold or in, like, a pool or something, traditionally, not always, but traditionally, a boy, like, sort of draws up into itself. Uh, it's sort of like <clears throat> you have some cold limbs stretched out. When you get really cold, you want to bring your arms in and sort of hug yourself. Well, that's what your junk does typically. So, you know, your, uh, your twig nestles itself back in as if it was like, I don't know, maybe the neck of a turtle, <laughs> for example. And uh, <laughs> your berries do the same. They sort of just like, you know, create this nice little pouch of warmth and they <laughs> just stay next to your body as close as possible. And w when you draw yourself out of a pool, you're just like pulling yourself up out of a pool, the air, obviously there's no air, so your your shorts, which were once filled with water, now no longer are, thus they suck to your body, showing the world the state of your junk. <laughs> and it's this cruel irony of, <laughs> of reality. Uh, and I feel like if there was any injustice in the world, water would do the exact opposite thing. Like, maybe if our junk was like a sponge, for example, and it sucked up all of the all of the moisture and just sort of, like a blowfish, just like, <laughs> like that is your junk. So when you do come up out of the water, 
It's impressive. You're just like, yes, that's right. <laughs> Fists on hips. <laughs> Turning your head and looking up into the sky. Yeah, yeah. Take it all in, ladies. Take it all in. <laughs> but no, it's not what happens. Uh, just something I found interesting. Cruel irony of the world, numbers 3,705. Uh, <laughs> Water. Damn you. That's going to do it <laughs> for yet another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the SatanNet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9 cents. And don't forget to leave your rating and or comment. And thank you to those who have. If you'd like to learn more about the truth of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit RadioFreeSatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!